According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Hebrews chapter 9. We're coming to the end of the chapter and getting ready for Hebrews chapter 10, which I'm excited about. Chapter 10 is my favorite chapter. Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible. Chapter 10 is my favorite chapter of the book. And uh, really, chapter 10 forms a marvelous summary and conclusion to what the first nine chapters are all about. So if we do our work well enough here in chapter 9, then we'll just be introduced to all kinds of glory in chapter 10 and, uh, and handle it just fine. It's a, it's a powerful chapter. And we're almost there. We're talking about the copies and then the reality. And the copies in verse 23, but the reality of Jesus in verse 24. Hebrews 9.23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. That is blood. Blood is what cleanses in the animal ritual system of the Old Testament. Blood is a cleansing factor because blood is a picture. It is a shadow. And so if you're cleaning the shadows, you can use shadows to clean shadows. But if you're going to clean the reality, you can't do it with shadows. You've got to clean the reality with the reality. And that's what we're talking about. The blood of Christ is the reality for the blood of lambs, bulls, and goats, which is the shadows that the Old Testament teaches in the shadow doctrine of these things. So it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. For us. His appearance stands before God the Father for us, representing the body of Christ that is the church. When Aaron went into the holy place, it was to represent Israel, and he had 12 tribes inscribed upon him. He went in with the 12 tribes of Israel and represented the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus goes into the heavenly holy place to stand before the Father, he does so on our behalf, to stand before the Father on behalf of the body and bride of Jesus Christ, what we call the church. It's a big difference between Israel and the church. So into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. And so this is where I want to pick it up this morning, picking up from where we left off a week ago, contrasting the often repeated annual again and again sacrifices from the Old Testament with the once and for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ by which you and I have eternal life. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for your Son. And we're able to do this, Father, because of your Son, that he opened the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. And here we are, Father, in his name. He represents us and we stand in him. And these are glorious, powerful truths. So I thank you for the book of Hebrews that spells these things out systematically in a detailed fashion. This is our book of Leviticus, Father, and we love it. So thank you for your faithfulness. Open our eyes to these truths that we might better uh, execute our priestly function and uh, teach us this morning. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so with reference to this, let me just real rapidly run through and then we'll gain new ground here. From If you were not here last week or even if you were here last week, this is what we were looking at out of verse 25. Repeated rituals represent a reality. Looking back to one thing and looking forward to another. Ritual is designed to teach something. Ritual is not just mindless. It's not just something you do for no reason. Okay? If ritual becomes that, you've got a problem. Repeated rituals represent a reality. They are not the reality, but they represent a reality. Looking back to one thing and looking forward to another. They are repeated year after year, generation after generation, so long as the basis for the ritual continues and the resolution has not yet come. 
It's very important that we identify with the fact that animal sacrifices are over and done with, not because they're old-fashioned, not because they're primitive, not because uh, society grew up and, and we, we know better now than, you know, we, uh, we understand animal rights now. We're not so primitive that we have animal sacrifices. We did not do with animal sacrifices out of any kind of uh, concern for primitiveness versus modernity. It has nothing to do with being modern. Animal sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the end of the law for all who believe. And we recognize it was done away with for a purpose. And because it's done away with, now we have the reality in Christ. So they're repeated year after year, generation after generation, so long as the basis for the ritual continues and the resolution has not yet come. For blood sacrifice, it was a repeated ritual looking back to the fall of Adam. Jesus himself did the very first blood sacrifice when he killed the animals and clothed Adam and Eve with the skins from those sacrificial animals. And uh, that's, that's why fig leaves was insufficient. Fig leaves had no blood. Fig leaves were not a blood sacrifice. But the death of those animals to, to clothe Adam and Eve with skins was a blood sacrifice. A repeated ritual looking back to the fall of Adam and looking forward to the second Adam coming to crush the serpent's head. And this is the, the first gospel message ever given in Genesis 3.15. And it's the doctrine that's contained in Romans 5. Through one Adam comes death, through the second Adam comes eternal life. And that's the provision. Which, by the way, this is fundamental Bible theology right here and is critical. And, and this is why evolution is so satanic and evil. This is why the other myths of human origins are so satanic and evil. You understand if there was no historical Adam, then there can be no second Adam to provide us with eternal life. That when you do away, if you, if you exchange historical Adam, biblical Adam for uh, you know, monkeys and evolution and whatever else, right? The, the goo to you by way of the zoo uh, approach of evolution. If that is factual, then we're not saved. If that's factual, then there's no way that a second Adam can redeem us from the fall of the first Adam. We've got to be very clear on that and stand for that. 1 Corinthians 15 also speaks of the first Adam who is earthly, the second Adam who is from above. And uh, those are important principles. Likewise, communion, church age communion, this is extra credit, not really part of of today's lesson, but just to carry the concept to our application. Church age communion is also is a repeated ritual. It looks back and it looks forward. It looks back to the blood of Christ shed on the cross and looks forward to the blood of Christ sprinkled on the nation of Israel. It looks back and it looks forward. Communion is not eternal. Communion is only until the Lord comes. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's looking back to his death and it's until he comes. It's looking forward to the sprinkled blood. The blood has been shed, but the blood has not yet been sprinkled on the nation of Israel. The Jewish people do not yet, uh, they do not let yet live in the land by faith. They live in the land by human effort. They live in the land in unbelief. And they live in the land being prepared for Antichrist and the judgment that will come in the tribulation. So this is all material last week. And I know it's very rapid, but I hope you, if you uh, need more on that, you can go get the MP3 that's just sitting there. All right. Verse 26 then is an otherwise. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often. Otherwise he would have needed. Here's a hypothetical that's not true. It's a counterfactual. If it was true, then he would have suffered. If, if Jesus had to do the sacrifice again and again and again, that means he would have had to suffer again and again and again. Because the suffering is what suited him to be the sacrifice. The passion is what uh, qualified him to do the work. And we'll see that again this morning. So he would have needed to suffer often. And the Father had no desire for Jesus to suffer more than once. It was a once and for all suffering to produce a once and for all sacrifice that could provide a once and for all salvation to all of humanity. Wow, that was good. I hope somebody wrote that down. All right. A once and, a once and for all suffering provided for a once and for all sacrifice which supplies a once and for all salvation for all of humanity. All right. Because this, this is just unthinkable. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. How tragic is that? But now, once, the idea is hapax, 
like the hapax legomena are the words that only occur once in the Bible. Once, hapax, once, at the consummation of the ages, viewing the cross as the culmination, consummation, as the climax, as the, you know, what, substitute whatever word you want to put in there for the, the pinnacle. The consummation of the ages. Now there are ages that follow, of course, in the fullness of time, the eternity, future, ages of the ages. But the cross is the, is the fulcrum. It's the center point. It's the moment of conception, if you will. Because he goes to the cross, we can view that as the consummation that allows for eternity, future to be realized to the Father's glory. He has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Maybe the most important word of that whole verse is manifested. It's a big difference between just covering sin and taking away sin. We're going to talk about that. But not only does he take away sin, he is manifested, observed, displayed. Everybody observes the manifest destiny, the manifest uh, end of sin. It is manifest. The Father sees it, the Son sees it, angels see it, humans see it. It's manifest. Every eye, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It has to be manifest. And that's what I want to stress here this morning. So here in verse 26, as we deal with this, no, he doesn't have to go over and over again. That's what shadows were about. Shadow sacrifices covered for sin, allowing God to pass over while looking to the future. Remember, God is outside of space and time. He sees the end from the beginning. He has a comprehensive view of all existence, comprehensive view of all reality and also every potentiality that he can or that he chooses to either realize or not realize. Shadow sacrifices covered for sin. Didn't take away sin. No animal ritual ever took away any sin, not once. But they covered. The term kafar is the Hebrew for atonement. The day of atonement, the kafar activity, is a covering, not a removal. They are covered so that God can pass over. This is serious. This is absolutely critical to understand this. Because when they're covered, He overlooks them. He still knows they're there. But because they've been covered in the manner he prescribed, because they've been covered in faith by human beings looking forward, God functions in faithfulness looking forward and passing over sins that he would be very righteous to go ahead and judge. But he doesn't judge. He doesn't judge because he's long-suffering, forbearing, and he's looking forward to when he will judge them personally on the person of Jesus Christ infinitely for all eternity. So, passing over, this, uh, no no shock, no surprise, this is the concept that that defines the Jewish uh, holiday known as Passover, okay? And it's not complicated, but I think it gets forgotten. Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, and and I hope we kind of maybe get a new appreciation for this and a new sense of what this is dealing with. Exodus chapter 12, when he delivers Israel from bondage out of Egypt. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. It's the, serious, it's the most serious of all the, the plagues. Pharaoh himself will lose his firstborn. And uh, verse 13 and verse 23 are the key verses on this. But just so that you recognize that it's going to take blood to do this. Verse 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live because blood represents the reality. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over because the blood provides a covering. It provides an atonement, which is a covering. Now you'll notice when the animal dies and the instructions that they're given, um, backing up to, uh, to verse 5, I guess, 
or verse 3. Okay, fine, I'll read the whole chapter. The, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. So Nisan, Nisan becomes month one. What we think of as March in the spring, month number one. Okay, It's a Roman thing that turns January into our new year. Um, so Nisan, the month, this becomes the first of the, uh, the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. And so you select the Passover lamb on the 10th, Nisan 10. The lamb is selected, not killed, selected. Bring them into your house. Get to know them, okay? <laughs> now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. And so you organize it by household. You know, a single guy doesn't eat much or you know, a young couple with no kids yet. You know, you, you, you sort it out so that you have sufficient because there's going to be no leftovers on this lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it, and that's interesting too, isn't it? From the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So you shall keep it. This is the only place I find any pet anywhere in the Bible. And it's a pet you bring home on one day and you kill it four days later. All right? That's, uh, that's the doctrine of pets in the Bible. All right. So you select the lamb on Nisan 10. Keep in mind, this corresponds when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on Nisan 10, what we call Palm Sunday, which was really Palm Monday. It was the 10th of Nisan when the Passover lamb was selected, identified by those with faith to sing the hosannas and welcome their Messiah. And then on the 14th, on Friday, is when the Passover lamb died for our sins. Okay, Same is taught right here in Exodus 1,500 years ahead of time. Now, not only do you kill it, you shall keep it to the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Kill it at twilight, and it's going to get dark as uh, this lamb dies, just as it got dark when Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood, and this is what's critical. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. See, if the blood never gets applied, Passover doesn't happen. Killing the animal is not the totality of the procedure. It's necessary, but then the blood has to be applied. So think about that, where Israel is concerned today. The blood was shed at Calvary, but the blood has not been applied yet to the nation of Israel. They can't have their millennial kingdom yet because the blood was shed, but the blood is not yet applied. Same thing here. There's shed blood and then there's applied blood. And it's the blood must be applied for atonement to happen, for Passover to occur. And so uh, put it on the doorpost, put it on the lintel. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over till morning. No leftovers for, for the Passover lamb. Whatever is left of it, uh, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You don't, there's, you don't eat normal meals that way, but this night you do. And year after year after year, this is how they observe Passover. In haste. For I will go through the land of Egypt that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. But the blood has to be applied, not just shed. You can't just kill the animal and have a nice meal. That blood has to be applied to your doorposts and to your lintel. Without the application of the blood, your firstborn will die. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He has to see the blood. That's the sign. All right, well, that gets us down through verse 13, and then uh, they actually do this, and the, it's restated 
in uh, verse 23, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. The destroyer is Jesus Christ himself. The angel of the Lord is the destroyer who is coming to uh, apply this, this wrath. All right. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, when David composes his hymn, Psalm 32, we have a fundamental aspect of sin in its atonement, in its forgiveness, in looking past and looking beyond. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The verb is kafar, to cover. That's why we have kafar for atonement or kippur. When you double the, the middle radical, you get pp, kippur. Yom kippur is what? Day of atonement whose sin is not removed, whose sin is covered. Every Old Testament saint that got saved before the cross, their sin was covered and God passed over looking forward to the cross. So how blessed, Asherah, happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The reason why iniquity is not imputed is because God knows He's going to impute that to Jesus on the cross. And so He chooses to waive the imputation to the sinners. He doesn't impute it to the sinners. And when the sinners die, where do they go? They go to Abraham's bosom. They, go, they can't go to heaven. They can't enter into the presence of God, but they do go to a place of comfort. They go to a place of rest, waiting for the sin to be removed. Then captivity can be taken captive and Old Testament saints can be brought to heaven. So shadow sacrifice is covered for sin, not removing sin. When Jesus came, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if shadow sacrifice is covered, understand the substance sacrifice of Jesus Christ removed the sin of the world. John 1.29, allowing God to be the just justifier of the justified. And I want you to write that down. I want you to write that down in exactly those words because that's Romans chapter 3 and it's critical. But John 1, 29, when John the Baptist was preaching, he was preaching, of course, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He, he's the herald, he's the forerunner. The king is coming, the king is coming. But if the king is going to truly bring in the kingdom, uh, this people's got to get saved, okay? The Jewish people... Unbelievers have to come to faith and believers have to, have to put away their, their sin and uh, in a sense of a public repentance to prepare for the entrance into the, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so uh, John 1, 29, when he sees the Lamb of God, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, and it's not a covering. It doesn't cover for sin. He takes away the sin, singular, hamartia, singular, the sin of the world. Remember, that's the Adam's original estate. That's through one man, death entered into the, sin entered in the world and death through sin because all sin. Jesus is dealing with the whole Adamic lost estate. He takes away the sin of the world. He's removing that lost estate of an Adam, making it possible for those who place their faith in Christ to be transferred to the second Adam from the first Adam to the second Adam. And you can be assigned from uh, being, in Christ, being in Adam to being in Christ. That's called getting saved. In Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. So behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a huge difference. So today when, some, when a believer dies, they don't just have their sins covered and have to go hang out with Abraham and, and uh, Lazarus and those guys in Abraham's bosom. No, today when a believer dies, it's absent from the body and at home with Jesus Christ. We get to be at home with Jesus Christ, face to face with the Lord. Big difference. And so the substance sacrifice does this, not the shadows. But see, he accepted every shadow sacrifice by looking forward to the substance sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Are we clear on that? How shadows give way to substance? All right. This allows God to be the just justifier of the justified. Romans 3, 25 through 26. And it's critical. It's what makes the cross necessary. 
that we identify with this. Romans chapter 3. This is why there aren't other paths. That's why there aren't multiple ways to glory. There's one way and only one way because this is the necessary way. And apart from this, any other justification would be an unjust justification, which is an oxymoron. All right. But the idea that he can wink at sin, the idea that he can bring a sinner to heaven without satisfying righteousness means that God himself would be the eternal hypocrite winking at sin and, and uh, being an unjust uh, appeaser instead of the just justifier. So he'd be, uh, I guess, an excuser then, excusing sin instead of forgiving it. How sad would that be? No, he doesn't excuse sin. He judges it. And then he brings us to glory on that basis. So Romans 3 25 and 26. And I know I emphasize this. If you were in this class back in the Romans uh, time frame, I hammered away at this. And maybe uh, maybe the, the full impact didn't quite hit you yet. Maybe this will lock it in. <clears throat> so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's the one and only way. There is no other way. Every, if, without the justification in Christ, redemption in Christ Jesus, if it's, the, if it's not the blood of Jesus purchasing your redemption, you're not purchased. You're still a sinner falling short of the glory of God. Whom God displayed publicly. There it is. Remember I mentioned in Hebrews, I said manifested is probably the most important word of that verse. And here, God displayed publicly. This is the eternal display before God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, angels, humans, everybody. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. The Father was satisfied and He displayed that to everybody. Every elect angel, every fallen angel. A propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness not his hypocrisy not his winking at sin not his excusing of things beforehand his righteousness because in the forbearance of god he passed over the sins previously committed he passed over those sins now jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet the sin hadn't been removed yet but he passed over those sins and he was righteous for doing so He was not hypocritical for doing so and he wasn't compromising or winking or excusing. He was righteous for doing so because he was looking to the satisfaction in the death of his son. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So everything that happened before the cross is leading up to the now of the completed work of Christ on the cross so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what allows him to be the just justifier of the justified, those who have faith in Jesus. You understand that? And so right there in verse 26, so that he would be just. This is what allows him to be just. This is what allows him to display the just nature. This is what condemns Satan and every other fallen angel. This is what condemns every human unbeliever. This is why every God is just when he takes every human unbeliever at the great white throne and casts him into the lake of fire for all eternity. And he's not unjust to do that. He is just because he poured out his wrath on his son. He is just. And he is displayed as being just. This is the greatest cosmic uh, show and tell for all eternity. The greatest cosmic show and tell from the Alpha to the Omega is God the Father displaying his just justification of the justified. When the just dies for the unjust. When God's wrath is poured out on Jesus and Jesus accepts it in our place, we have 
the drama of the ages played out. This is the, the, the demonstration of his satisfaction of the justified, of the just justifier. He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there is no kind of winking at sin. There's no kind of, well, that's okay. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, you know, God loves you anyway. God loves, He's not going to put anybody in hell. Somebody sent me that the other day. How can a God of love send anybody to hell? How can a God of righteousness send anybody to heaven? Okay, let's, let's look at the totality of everything. The, right, the love and the righteousness. And they come together in Jesus Christ. Called the marriage of grace and faith, right? It's, the, it's that great reconciliation. That's why penal substitution is the only theory of atonement that is validated by the whole counsel of the Word of God. So shadows did what they did, but shadows were looking forward. That's why they were repeated over and over and over again. Because they're, they're based on something in the past, but they're looking forward to something in the future. Well, when that fulfillment comes, shadows are done. The substance sacrifice of Jesus Christ removed the sin of the world. All right. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after that the judgment. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also. And here's the... uh, glories and what we have to look forward to. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await Him. All right, a lot to unpack in these two verses here, but this is what closes chapter 9. All right, the, the glories of what Jesus did on the cross, the glories of going to heaven to cleanse the temple there, the glories of removing sin and, and cleansing our conscience, all the glories that this chapter uh, communicates is, pointing, is, is, is setting the table for what happens when Jesus comes back. <laughs> you know, is that a tough act to follow? I mean, first advent was pretty spectacular like removing the sin of the world and cleansing the heavenly temple and establishing the eternal priesthood, Melchizedek priesthood in Christ, the glories that he accomplished in first advent in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and session of Jesus Christ. And all of that is not the culmination. That gets ready for what comes next. He's he's seated at the right hand of the Father, yes, but only until the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet and says, go, rule in the midst of your enemies. All right. So it is appointed for man to die once. After this comes judgment. If you know any Hindus or anyone that New Agers, some of these whack jobs that that like to talk about reincarnation, you know Shirley MacLaine types that think they've been here before in different lives and different things and whatever. That's just it's not biblical. It's demonic as anything. We get one shot at this. We're born. We live. We die. The final exam gets administered. We have eternal consequences for one lifetime of production. One and only one. Physical death places every man on the docket for their final temporal life evaluation. Physical death places every man on the docket for their final temporal life examination. It's not a midterm it's not midterms, it's finals. The final, the one and only. Physical death places every man on the docket. And see, this is the thing. Until you come to faith in Christ, you're slated, you're on the docket for the great white throne judgment. As you're born an unbeliever, every human being is born an unbeliever. So every, every unbeliever that's born, which is every human that's born, is on the docket for the great white throne whereby uh, they're slated for the lake of fire and they're going to be judged by their deeds. And uh, it says it's a terrible lost estate in Adam. That's the docket. That's the court that you're assigned to. It's called the great white throne. Good news is, is when you get saved, you get remanded to a different court. The good news is, is the day you place your faith in Christ, you are delivered not only from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, but then your end of life, what do I call this? Final temporal life examination 
is reassigned to a new court. So when you get saved, you're removed from the great white throne docket and you're assigned in the church age, you're assigned to the judgment seat of Christ, the bema of Jesus Christ. And that's a glory, okay? The Old Testament saints, they've got a different docket, but just for our application, we go from the great white throne to the judgment seat of Christ, totally different judgments. And understanding what courtroom you're in is huge, okay? It it takes all the pressure off. That's why all those jokes are stupid about, you know, dying and then wondering if you're going to go upstairs or go downstairs, right? Or dying and going up to the pearly gates and St. Peter says, you know, why should I let you into heaven? All right? Which, you know, sets, you know, there's a thousand jokes with different punchlines, but all the same setup. And they're all dumb, okay? They're all unbiblical. If, if uh, St. Peter were, you know, the, I, I can ima- I've already planned on my arrival. And if, if St. Peter or some angel, some heavenly schmuck tries to ask me why I deserve to be in there, I don't deserve it at all. I don't deserve it at all, but get out of my way because this is, this is my home, okay? This is my home. I belong here. All right. <laughs> the signature sound song that has that line in it that goes, um, it's a beautiful song. It's called uh, Sometimes I Wonder. And about halfway through the song, they ask the question, when you entered heaven, did you walk or did you break into a run? And I love that. I love that. All right. The fact that you're at the judgment seat of Christ means you're saved. The fact that you're in that courtroom means the whole question about where you're going, that's, that's over and done with. That's been resolved. That's not even a question to be asked anymore. And then the fire hits your, your wood hay stubble production to be consumed and removed so that your divine good production can be purified. Your gold, silver, precious stones can abound to the reward of Jesus Christ for all eternity. So a physical death places every man on the docket for their final temporal life examination. It's either one of righteousness or judgment. It's either one of life or death. And we get that. We've taught the judgment seat of Christ before. We understand that. Before the church age, though, there was a little bit of a, of a question as to the timing of certain things. John chapter 5 Really, it conveys what was previously given in Daniel chapter 12 and in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 43 or something, I forget the Isaiah reference. But in Daniel chapter 12, there's discussion of a twin resurrection, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. And uh, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these on the one hand to everlasting life, but others on the other hand to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so born-again believers are resurrected to receive reward and enter into glory. Unbelievers are resurrected to, uh, to be judged and be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And that's the, that's the description in Daniel 12. That's the description in John 5. As Jesus spoke of this, as a twin resurrection of life and death. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Who will hear? The dead will hear. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. God the Father assigns judgment function to God the Son because of God the Son's faithful obedience in First Advent. Because the God-man came and the Son of Man was faithful even to death on a cross. All right. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. It's believers and unbelievers. Resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment. Very similar to what we have in Daniel. Of course, you and I, we get resurrected to the resurrection of life. And that's at the, for the church, it's the rapture of the church event. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12. If you want more on this, we've got a booklet in the hallway on the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14. 
That's why we shouldn't be so judgy with one another here and now. Who do we think we are? We're not the judges. Jesus, all judgment's been given to the Son. So you, why do you judge your brother? Why, you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. That's Isaiah 45. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. That's what we have to look forward to. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I do what I do. 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is why we're not afraid of physical death. We're looking forward to it. Being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. As long as we're at home here, we're just camping. (laughs) This body's a tent. This isn't the permanent arrangement. We're just here on one big camping trip waiting to go to heaven. We walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. And unlike other camping trips where you take your tent home and get it ready for next time, we're leaving this tent here. There's not going to be a next time. We won't need this tent ever again. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's when the fire judges the quality of your wood, hay, stubble as against the gold, silver, and precious stones. So physical death places you on the docket. See, until you've died physically, you're still laying stuff up there. You're still producing the things that will be judged. The criteria upon which you will be judged are still being laid up there in evidence. Evidence is still being submitted until you die. And then when you're dead, that's it. Game over. No more, no more late submissions. No more no post-mortem evangelism. That's starting to become a thing. The idea of a second chance in purgatory kind of a thing. I, was, I thought the Protestant Reformation answered that 500 years ago. All right. Now even evangelicals are starting to say, well, maybe there's a postmodern. It's an insanity for post-mortem evangelism. Jesus Christ. Now think about it. If it's appointed unto men to die once and after that the judgment, what kind of judgment did, he, did Jesus get? Because he died once. And he gets everything. He's the heir of all things. And his judgment, his personal bema seat from God the Father, when the Son of Man came and presented himself to the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, we, we looked at that, and the Ancient of Days bestows upon him everything. The kingdom, the power, the glory, the dominion, both now and forever, belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ receives the greatest final temporal life examination as he is exalted by God the Father over every name that is named and appointed to be the eternal judge of all. Appointed to be the eternal judge of all. And that's John 5, we just read them, verses 22 and 27 in the lead up to verse 29. Okay? I outsmarted myself by reading those earlier, but you got it. We were just there a few minutes ago. Because he is the son of man, because he is faithful, he is the faithful one. He humbled himself in a way that Satan was never willing to do. He humbled himself in a way that Adam was, the first Adam was not willing to do. He is now the judge of all. Some of these other references I think are are also uh, noteworthy and ought to be a part of our... um, ambassadorial function, part of our evangelism message perhaps. If in fact um, you're dealing with folks that don't have a sense of their own accountability, they take comfort in their own uh, fervent uh, atheism because their biggest motivation to be fervent atheists is the desire to not be accountable to anybody for uh, judging the, the, the life they're living or the things they're doing. Okay? but uh, they betray their own lack of atheism. See, I don't believe in atheists. Even, even the most vehement atheists out there, they don't believe it either. They just talk it, they, they talk it out loud, but in their soul, they're made in the image of God. And they, you can't hate what you don't believe in. They've got such a hostility and a hatred for the God they claim to not believe in, it, uh, it gives it away. Acts 10.42, look at this... Um, This is a sermon that Peter is preaching. 
This is on the occasion when he's uh, going to fellowship with a Gentile household. And it's kind of awkward for Peter. He hasn't really been chummy with Goyim uh, his whole life. He's never eaten with uh, a Gentile. He's never eaten unclean food, which is probably why God selected him and said, Peter, I want you to go down here and have dinner with Cornelius. And so he's talking about God is not one to show partiality in every nation, the man who fears him. And so he talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes through a whole message here about his death, about his ministry, his death, his resurrection. So in Acts 10, 39, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. The display is critical. Jesus was manifested to his apostles, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. The appearances were commissions to apostolic ministry. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, the one and only, one Adam, one death, one time, the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You see how exclusive that is? You'll be hated for it. They'll call you narrow-minded. They'll call you haters. They'll say, uh, you know, well, what about, you know, and they have all these human objections. Why can't nice Muslims go to heaven? Why can't nice Mormons go to heaven? Why can't nice, you know, they, they substitute nice. It's the theology of nice in, more, uh, in uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. The idea of be nice. I tell you, nice people go to hell every day because it's about faith in Christ. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. To some of the nicest people that, that were very religious but didn't have faith in Christ. So he's been appointed to judge the living and the dead. Of course, we're the living with spiritual life, with Zoe life in Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and Jesus judges both. John 7, uh, Acts 17, 31. This is in the Sermon on Mars Hill. They've got this temple to the unknown God. And Paul says, let me tell you about this God you don't know. He's nearby, he's knowable, and you're accountable to him because he sent his son. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to man that all people everywhere should repent. Now it's curious to me because he talks about the times of ignorance. God's way ahead of us and he's got answers. All these human objections. Well, what about the Western Hemisphere before Columbus? What about the unreached? What about the pagans that never heard the gospel? Please, God's way ahead of you. Always has been. He's had provision for the Adamic race ever since he promised the seed of the woman to Adam and Eve. All right. He calls it the times of ignorance. And we're past that now anyway. We've got a gospel that's gone to the ends of the earth. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness because he's the just justifier of the justified. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. What day is that? I don't know. You don't know. God knows. The Father knows. He's fixed a day. Through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. All right. Muhammad died. Joseph Smith died. All those other guys died and they're still dead. Jesus died and rose on the third day. And it's proof. God on display is manifesting. This is the beloved son. This is the son of man. This is the appointed judge of the living and the dead. Why? Because he was dead and now lives forevermore. Judgment day is coming and we all stand all right, Ephesians 1.21. It'll be a while until we get to Ephesians. We'll do Colossians and then Philemon before we get to Ephesians. Ephesians 1 and verse uh, 21. 
We want to know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Think about it. If you're an Old Testament believer, if you're an Old Testament Jewish believer, you're identifying with the Moses. You're identifying with Moses who brought you through the Red Sea. You're identifying with the power of God who redeemed you from bondage in Egypt, who brought you through the Red Sea, who brought you into the land of promise. You're identifying with Moses and the power of God who did all of that. You and I in the New Testament, in the church age, we identify with the power of God and not Moses, but Jesus who died and rose again. We have this identification and the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. That's far better than the Red Sea Exodus might. Okay, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So because He's above every name, that means there's no one that outranks Him. There's no one that outjudges Him. There's no higher court that will overturn His rulings. When He assigns what He assigns at the, at the great white throne, that's that. When He assigns what He assigns at the judgment seat of Christ, that's that. When He assigns what He assigns at the uh, resurrection of life in Revelation chapter 20 to Old Testament saints, that's that. There's no appeal. There's no higher court. All right. Because He has a name above every name. Not only in this age, but also the one to come. Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. See, this concept takes us all the way back to the introduction of the book. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed, heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. So Jesus Christ receives the greatest final temporal life examination as He is exalted by God the Father over every name that is named and appointed to be the eternal judge of all. All judgment has been given to the Son. So Christ also having been offered verse 28 See this is why it's curious all judgment has been given to the Son. Why do we need plural thrones? Okay. And uh, when we were in Daniel 7 last week, and I asked you that, the Son of Man came up, thrones were established, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Singular. Why do we need multiple thrones for the Ancient of Days to sit down there all by himself? Well, Daniel doesn't have a clue. No Old Testament believer has any concept for the mystery body of Christ. But there are multiple seats. And by the time we get to Revelation chapter 20, there are multiple thrones. And they are all seated. Because all judgment's been given to the Son, and the Son is not alone. The Father has prepared a bride for His Son. And so we have the thrones there in Revelation chapter 20, which represents Jesus and His bride presiding over the resurrected Old Testament saints and the judgment that they receive. All right, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Sin will not be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, I'm sorry, at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Sin will not be an issue. He dealt with sin in His first advent. When He's coming back at second advent, it's to bring believers into the kingdom, to expel unbelievers from the face of the earth. The sin issue was dealt with in his first advent so he can establish the kingdom in second advent. We want to be clear on that. 
the first advent of Jesus Christ dealt with a sin issue and made no effort for world judgment. This is why so many of the apostles were bugged. This is why Judas Iscariot was upset. This is why I'm sure Simon Zealot, the Zealot party was all about overthrowing the Romans and bringing in the kingdom. He didn't come to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. First advent was about salvation. It was about dealing with the sin issue. That's why when the forerunner came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said, repent. Because first advent had to deal with the sin issue. Second advent, we'll look at these verses here. Second advent of Jesus Christ will feature no sin offering, but global salvation and judgment. He's not going back to another cross. By the way, he's not going to kenosis empty himself either. The kenosis emptying was the humility of the first advent. When he comes back second advent, there's no kenosis. There's no emptying himself. He returns with power and great glory with a majesty that causes the unbeliever to tremble and fall over, with the wrath poured out that judges this world. All right. Difference between first advent and second advent. Now, as it was presented in the Old Testament, of course, there didn't have to be two advents. There could have just been one coming. It could have been one herald, one forerunner, one coming, and the Jewish people accepting and kingdom, here we are. Not how it turned out. And the Father knew that in His foreknowledge that it wouldn't be how it would turn out. But it could have. It's one of those counterfactuals. Could have, would have, should have, but didn't. Okay? And so because the king was rejected, the kingdom was delayed took the took the sun to heaven and and now we have the church we have the outworking of the heavenly people in contrast to the outworking of the of the earthly people and we have the plan of god that it wasn't thwarted at all of course god knew ahead of time he wasn't up there hoping that it would turn out differently he knew better planned for it accordingly so first advent was to deal with sin second advent is not to deal with sin because it's done once and for all It is a done deal. The sin issue has already been resolved. He's ready to come now and exercise global judgment. Global salvation and global judgment. All right, so I got both the halves of this verse up there. Um, I think I'm going to save the bulk of this for next week because I'd I'd hate to just rush through this in five minutes. Um, But let's uh, let's at least get a start. Uh, Isaiah 53. I can tease you for next week's message. Isaiah 53. So next week we will finish chapter 9 and get ready for chapter 10. The dealing with a sin issue. You know, really, we can teach substitutionary atonement through the first nine verses. And if the chapter ends with verse 9, we're good. We're fine with with the first nine verses. Because we have our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Uh, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his scourging we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. The whole gospel message is right there. With humanity lost in Adam and the need of a substitute to take our place. And all of that's right there. Down through the first nine verses. It says, uh, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so really end the chapter there and teach the doctrine. But it doesn't. It goes on. It goes on like a, you know, like a pastor that just keeps going on and on. Okay, we get it already. You explained it already. Why are you explaining more? Because there's more to explain. And the reinforcement is going to be powerful. Because now we have the interaction between the Father and the Son. And so the Lord, that's God the Father, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And so here's the Father who was pleased to crush the Son, putting him to grief. And what was it that put him to grief? 
What was it? He's not on the cross yet. This is again, this is backing up to tell the story now a second time, but with more detail of this dynamic between the Father and the Son. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. So the Father's pleased to do it, but the Son has to be pleased to do it. They do this together. Abraham and Isaac walk up the mountain together. Isaac carries his own wood. Jesus carries his own cross. The Son is willing to be the sacrifice if He would render Himself as a guilt offering. He will see, He will prolong His days and the good pleasure, He will see His offspring, He will prolong His days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. So this is the agreement between the Father and the Son. The Father is willing to put the Son through this. The Son is willing to go through this. And if they do this volitionally, he will see his offspring. Jesus Christ gets children. That's why we have a fullness of time with the children of Jesus Christ for a thousand generations. You and I, by the way, are we children of Jesus Christ? No, we're brothers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We're children of God the Father. When you became a believer, you became a child of God the Father. No church age saint is a child of Jesus. We're the brethren of Jesus and the bride of Jesus. The children of Jesus is another thing. That's coming up for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. When he says, I will be their father. That's why he's called the eternal father. All right. As a result, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul. This is the suffering. This is the pain. This is what he's only going to do once. As a result of the anguish of his soul. By the way, this was the night before. This was Gethsemane. When he was praying fervently. The the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. The anguish of his soul. When his soul was crushed in Gethsemane, that qualified him to go to Golgotha the next day. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied The reason why the Father is propitiated is because the Son accepted the full volitional sacrifice on our behalf. He will see it and be satisfied. The doctrine of propitiation. We teach it. Propitiation means the Father was satisfied. Why was He satisfied? Well, 1 John 2.2 doesn't tell us why. It just says He was. Not for our sins also, but the, the, the sins of the whole world. But it doesn't say why. This verse tells us why. Because it was the greatest volitional sacrifice ever. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Remember, it was necessary for him to be the just justifier. What qualified Jesus to be on the cross? The fact that he was sinless meant that he could paint the picture. But what qualified him to be the justifier? You ever think about that? Sinless and perfect, he was qualified to be the offering. But what qualified him to be the offerer? By his knowledge, by being crushed, by being the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, by personally having every sin of the human race placed on him and the full awareness of what that darkness was all about. Nothing was done in ignorance. Nothing was done by compulsion. Ignorance is de facto a compulsion. He had to have 100% knowledge of every human sin, all angelic sin, the totality of all sin and evil. And it crushed him. And he accepted it. As the Father said, you're qualified to be the justifier. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So he dealt with the sin issue. He dealt with it once and for all. When he comes back at second advent, it's not to deal with the sin issue. That's over and done with. We'll take a look at these verses next week. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your time. You've supplied it to us. And, and we want to redeem the time as we study to show ourselves approved. A little here, a little there. 
It's amazing, Father, how a message given in 700 B.C. through the prophet Isaiah, it just comes alive in the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the doctrine out of the book of Hebrews. It's some of the deepest stuff we've ever studied. And yet, Father, um, it's powerful for our application. I pray that we are mindful of our duties in our Melchizedek priesthood, that we would be mindful of what it is you're opening our eyes to, so that we also become volitional uh, priests, ministering on the full awareness and basis of what we learn as we suffer so that we can minister on behalf of others, even as our Savior also did. Father, open our eyes to these powerful blessings. And if we decide at some point that we just don't like the suffering, I pray that you rebuke us and humble us and convict us. Remind us, Father, that if it's not for the suffering, we're not suited to be the priest that you've called us to be. Father, we want to be the sympathetic and merciful priests, even as our Savior is the sympathetic and merciful high priest of our confession. So Father, these are powerful lessons. Open our eyes to all of them. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.